Well, good morning to you all. Take your Bibles open to Romans 15, if you would. I get to do a very rare thing after the sermon today. I get to move the ribbon to a new page. That I know, I know. It's a banner day. Doesn't happen often, does it? You don't really have to answer that. <clears throat> we are intending to cover the remainder of Romans chapter 15 today. I know you probably thought that was a typo in your bulletin, but uh, we are going to get all the way through the chapter, Lord willing. And so I'm going to read that to us now, starting in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to come to you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we join together and approach your throne in this way to worship you, to call to mind who you are and give you glory for who you are. Father, we praise you for what you have done for us in Christ, that you have redeemed us from a people who once were far off, but now in Christ we've been brought near. And we've been brought near together. We have this local expression of the body, and there are other Christians in our community who are meeting together even now and sitting under the teaching of your word and worshiping you together. And we have brothers and sisters in Christ in far-flung places. And we are all one in Christ. We rejoice in that. And Father, this morning as we look at Paul's ministry, 
I pray that you would help us to have our eyes open to what you might have for us from your word this morning. We desire to learn of you. We desire to give you glory. So we pray that you would be at work even in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So many of you know uh, our story uh, as a family. Um, many of you were there, were part of it. You remember it clearly. But in uh, 1996, 97, uh, my wife and I went to Russia. We were there for a year. And on the return trip, when we came back to the States, uh, it was then that I got it into my head that uh, I wanted to be a missionary to Russia. And I wanted to be there for the rest of my life. And so from that point on, all of our training, all of the schooling that I did uh, became directed towards that ministry that we would ultimately have in, uh, in Russia, overseas. And uh, I even took a couple of exploratory trips that uh, direction, went to Russia and looked around at different ministries going on, different types of ministry. And we weren't really sure initially what kind of ministry that we uh, wanted to do, but after a time it settled on uh, desiring to train pastors and church planters to bring theological training to them because they didn't really have access to it uh, in, in those places. And so we wanted to, uh, to do that. So that was kind of the type of missionary uh, work that we settled on. But really, when you think about missions, there are all manner of types of work that can be done. Even if you think about the missionaries that we support, they do a wide range of ministries in a wide range of places. And so... Uh, we even heard just a couple of weeks ago from missionaries who were, have a very creative ministry in a very uh, difficult place, and uh, God has blessed them with opportunity in that kind of a context to minister in a way that works there. And so uh, missionaries are very interesting people. Missionaries have very interesting work. And we're all, you know, we've received missionary letters before, whether you've uh, received it forwarded from Parkside or whether you support missionaries on your own. But I don't know if you've ever thought of it, but Romans itself is sort of a missionary letter. It's kind of a missionary update where Paul is uh, telling his audience about what he's doing. And actually, it's even a support letter, as we're going to see a little bit today, that, that uh, Paul has that kind of uh, a bent to this letter as well, that he intends to be sent on his way by them. That means financially supported to move on to the next stage of ministry. And so in this portion of the letter where we're kind of coming to the close of chapter 15, we're going to begin to see kind of a picture of Paul's own ministry and the breadth of ministry that he did, the types of ministry that he was involved in. And there's a, a wide range and so we want to look at Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. And I want to note, first of all, just in the first couple of verses in our paragraph today, his instruction to the mature. His instruction to the mature. He says in verse 14 and 15 how satisfied he is with them. That they are a mature church. They're able even to teach one another. They're a strong church. They have a lot going for them. And so he's not just writing to say, oh, you guys have everything messed up. I've got to straighten everything out. Let's start at the beginning. That's not what it's like. He's saying, I have great confidence in you. I'm very pleased in general about how the church is doing there. He had said back in chapter 1 that he was thankful for them because their faith was proclaimed in all the world. That's something else. The faith of these believers in Rome would be proclaimed in all the world. And he said that, in fact, he wanted to come to them to impart some spiritual gift to them, to strengthen them, and that he actually might be strengthened as well. So he looked forward to being amongst them, not just so that he could pour into them, so that he could shape them into something, so that he could uh, change the things that they were doing, but he was also desirous to receive some benefit from them, some mutual blessing from uh, being amongst them. So he, he had a very high regard for the church. It was a, it was a good church in Rome. In many ways, it was a very healthy church in a lot of ways. And yet, to those mature people and to that mature uh, church, he writes instructions and he writes corrections and exhortations. They had divisions in their midst. They had 
hard feelings between people, and it seems to have been related primarily to uh, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles uh, within that same church, and so those things needed to be addressed. But what strikes me is the instructions to the mature, and that that makes me ask a, a question of myself and maybe of each of us here. Have you matured beyond the point where you are able to receive instruction from God's Word? Or can it still teach you and correct you? That's a a question for me, and that's a a question for you. When you hear the Word of God preached, do you only really receive, are you only really open to hearing those things that affirm what you already do and believe? Or are you open to hearing from God's Word things that might correct the things that you do and the things that you believe? Because Paul was writing this letter not to an immature church, but to a mature church. And yet it included uh, these corrections and these directions and instructions. We see in the continuing verses here, Paul's uh, priestly ministry to the Gentiles. He continues on in, uh, in the second half of verse 15 there. He says, because of the grace of God given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's priestly language. Now, Paul is not a priest, but he functions as a priest. His his, uh, ministry, first of all, is mainly to the Gentiles. That's the direction. That's the main focus. But, of course, we've gone through the book of Acts together, and we've gone through Romans, and we know that he, uh, when he shows up to a new town, he goes to the Jew first, and he preaches in, in the synagogue until they won't let him anymore. And then he moves on and begins to work uh, more primarily with Gentiles. But he is the apostle to the Gentiles. So his main mission field is that direction with them. But he's using priestly language about his own ministry there. But where we would normally find some type of animal or some other type of offering given, Paul says, you Gentiles are the offering." The offering to God. That's the direction of his ministry. Faithful, believing Gentiles who have been instructed, they've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, they've been formed into a healthy church. That's the kind of offering that he's talking about. That's the priestly service. So Paul uses priestly language about his own ministry to the Gentiles. We see in verses 17. Uh, through 21, the apostolic ministry model. This is kind of a peek at, uh, at what uh, Paul did, kind of the, the focus there of his ministry. We start at verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Kind of sounds odd to our ears, doesn't it? Right? And Paul is very careful when he's boasting about his work for God. He's very careful to give all credit to Christ. This is Jesus who has done this. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. You know where Illyricum is? I'm not sure how good your ancient you know, Roman geography really was, but we, we have a touch point with Illyricum. It's almost to Croatia. We happen to know the Hetans who live in Croatia. So if you think about Paul's description, he's saying all the way starting from Jerusalem, all the way up the coast and around and Turkey and, and Greece and all, all, almost to Croatia, I've completed gospel ministry. That's a, that's a large portion of the Roman Empire. How can he say he's completed gospel ministry? Well, we're going we're gonna to see that a little bit, but... But the idea of Paul's ministry and him uh, saying that he has completed or fulfilled gospel ministry is that he has gone to new places, particularly amongst the Gentiles. He's preached the gospel there. He's seen people come to Christ. He has formed them into a church. He's trained them so that they can be self-sufficient, humanly speaking. And then he moves on to a new place. To preach the gospel somewhere new, because he doesn't want to preach the gospel on someone else's foundation. He wants to go to new places where there is no church. He wants to take the gospel there and proclaim the gospel there and see people come to Christ. And so he has done this throughout these regions, and he 
has actually completed that work. He says, as I travel along, I've, I've placed churches adequately in all of these different places, and now I've fulfilled this gospel ministry in this place. In verse 20, Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Christ is being proclaimed, and thus Christ is the one who is working in Paul's ministry. Paul had said back in chapter 1, by the way, in this section, the closing out of chapter 15, there's a lot of common language with chapter 1. And if you're familiar with figures of speech, if you're familiar with how books are written and how literature is written, he's, he's, he's starting to bring things back around. This is a figure of speech called a bookends, right? Where he's, he's mentioned these things in the beginning chapter, and now he's mentioning them again. He's tying things together. He's taking these, these threads and he's drawing them together so that we're getting a picture of what he's talking about in the entirety of the book. He said back in chapter 1 and, uh, and verse 5 that, um, that he, he and the other apostles had received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And he says here, he's presenting the Gentiles having been brought to obedience. He's saying the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of the apostle, is to go and preach Christ, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done, see people come to faith, and thus they are obedient to the faith in that sense, and continue ministering, having established healthy churches so that Christians minister to one another, they bring the word of God to one another, and Christians grow in their lifestyle change. They're not only redeemed souls, but they are redeemed lives. And so now their lives are useful to God. Their lives have been redeemed and have been changed. And he said that is the purpose of his ministry. That's, that's what he's been called to do, is to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So Paul has traveled. He's preached the gospel. He has worked with churches. He has uh, instructed them. He's corrected them. Sometimes he's corrected them very harshly. If you've read the book of Galatians, you know that he has corrected them very harshly sometimes. But he's preached and he's taught and he's worked to see Christian churches grow and mature. This is what Paul's ministry has been about. Now, his ministry is very different from our ministry, isn't it? You think about missionaries now. You know, most of our missionaries have moved at some point, particularly in recent years. But why have they done so? Well, it's because it's become difficult to live in this region, or we had some who were kicked out of a country for uh, political reasons. Actually, we've had that happen several times. They've had to move. But Paul's ministry was to move from place to place. Move here, preach the gospel, plant seeds, plant a church, grow it to maturity, move on to the next place and do that. His whole life was moving. His whole life was advancing and preaching the gospel. So ministry for us is very different. You know, we don't, we have a, a healthy church here at Parkside. Well, so you don't see the elders moving on to the next place or, or one of us taking off and going somewhere else to do the same thing again and again. That's not our ministry. Some people do that. That is a ministry that they do. But for us, uh, it's a very different ministry. So we see here when we look at, at Paul's ministry that this is the ministry of an apostle. This is a unique ministry. He gets to do signs and wonders too, by the way. He, he, he refers to that as uh, the signs of a true apostle. He travels about, he preaches. This is his life's calling. And it's a little bit different than ours. But uh, I want to point out, first of all, his is rather unique. There, there is no next apostle Paul. He didn't replace himself. He didn't, he didn't take a second and make him, you know, Apostle Paul Jr., and you're going to take this ministry and move it forward. This was a unique time when God was doing a unique thing in planting churches broadly. And now we find ourselves in the time primarily when we are growing and maturing those churches and continuing on that aspect of the ministry. So that's, that's kind of a broad outline of Paul's apostolic ministry. But I want to note in these next verses that that ministry, as we see it applied in this passage, is very holistic. 
It's a it's a it's a broad ranging. It 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 affects various aspects of life and various aspects of the church. Look at verse twenty two. He says, This is the reason why I have often been hindered from coming to you, because I had all this work to do. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have long hoped for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. He's going to Spain for evangelism. A large aspect of Paul's ministry was evangelism, was to see people come to Christ. And he says in this passage that actually he's He's got no, no other room to work. You know, what ministry has ever said, we've got no more room to work. We've done all the ministry that we can in this town. We're moving on. I, I've never said that. But, but with the model that Paul was using, the way he was proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, and once there was a healthy church established, it was his goal to press on and go to other places. You think of an exception of perhaps the time that he was in Ephesus. And he stayed there for years. What was he doing? He was, he was not only planting a church in Ephesus, but he was training those gospel ministers who would go out from that major metropolitan area as a hub into the surrounding regions. So even then, he was continuing that work by training those workers who would go out into Turkey and go out into these other places. But his focus on his trip to Spain is going to be evangelism. That's the far reaches of the empire. That's about as far as you can go, especially if you start in in Jerusalem. If you think of the Mediterranean, you know, one end over here is Israel, and what's the other end? Gibraltar. He's headed to the far end of the Mediterranean. He's going to go there. He's going to preach. He's going to see people come to Christ. And so that's why one of the reasons why he's writing this letter to Rome is to raise support for doing that. Turns out it costs money to do ministry. Paul was fundraising, and he wanted to spend time with them to strengthen them, enjoy their fellowship for a while in Rome before he jumped on and went a little further. So we see part of Paul's holistic ministry involved evangelism. But then we see something different. Verses 25, 26, and 27. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings. They ought also to be of service to them in material blessing. So he says that he's going to Jerusalem for benevolence purposes. He intends to go to Spain on an evangelistic mission. But in the meantime, he's got a different mission. He's got a benevolence mission. And this is a, something that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and the book of Acts. talks about this offering that had, that had been received. That the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were exceedingly poor. Exceedingly poor. So much so that Paul would, when he did his ministry, he would talk about it to the people who had come to Christ and to the churches that he visited or planted. And he encouraged them to set aside some money to send to the poor back in Jerusalem. The poor believers there in Jerusalem needed support, and he went to these other places in the world to gather that support and take that to them. Christians have certain familial obligations to one another, and those familial obligations oftentimes include meeting material needs. And that's what Paul was doing. And he, you know, when we have sent money to Africa and we've sent money to different places around the world and we have this great thing called Western Union, right? And so we would go to the Western Union office, which was over at Jeff's, and we would send money from there and, and, and that was too much work. So now how do we do it? You just, you just dial up westernunion.com or whatever it is. I don't know the address. And you can send it from your own desk. I'm not teasing Rochelle. This is, this is, this is just how easy it is for us to be able to send money. Well, what did Paul do? He probably had a bag of money that he carried with him when he was walking or when he was on a ship. And when he was staying somewhere, he had this bag of money he used as a pillow that he was, he was not using for his own purposes, but he was taking it back to the poor in Jerusalem. Well, we have a unique 
uh, opportunity in our day. We have a unique opportunity at our church that one of the ways that God has blessed us, and it is His blessing, is He has blessed us financially. That as a congregation, uh, as, as elders, when we look at the giving of the congregation, we are continually amazed at God's working in your heart to cause you to be so generous to give to God's work. We are amazed by that. We praise God for that, and we thank you for your involvement in that. And, and we've been able to give generously to missionaries over the years. We have a large number of missionaries, and, and this year we, we gave out very generous gifts of, of help above and beyond the normal missionary support to these missionaries. We've been able to do that already. And uh, so God has blessed us with that opportunity. And so we wanted you, first of all, to know about that. I think, I think many of you have heard about that. We've talked about it uh, briefly. But there's something else that I don't know if, if you have heard about, and that's a very practical need that we currently have right now. Some of us have been to uh, Africa a couple of different times, and there are uh, two particular countries we've spent the most time in, Rwanda and Burundi, our neighboring countries, and uh, they've been struggling through this whole COVID crisis, and particularly Rwanda has uh, shut down severely, so that right now they're 100% shut down. So, like, it's back to the thing where you're staying in your house, not going out, right? Well, if you've got a freezer full of food, uh, that's good. And if you can order Amazon or you can, or you can order, you know, from uh, Walmart and, or whatever and have it delivered or something like that, that's convenient. But Rwanda doesn't have that. So you've got people who are really, really struggling. And there's one pastor in particular... Theophily is his name. And he, he, uh, his wife works, and he works. He's a pastor. And, uh, and they struggle. They have a lot of kids. They struggle financially with their, with their needs. And we just found out recently that, I didn't realize this, but Theophily works 30 kilometers uh, from his house. So when he goes to church, he commutes 20 miles, which... For him, if he has the money, means he rides a motorcycle. You, they have taxis. It's a motorcycle, and you hop on the back, and they, they take you there. Well, because of that, his kids haven't gone to church in I don't know how long. So his kids don't go to church with him because they don't want to load him up on motorcycles and tote him across town. They probably can't afford to do so. So long story short, Theophily, uh, uh, we, we have been able, uh, members of the congregation and, and the church, has sent some funds so that uh, Theophily could 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 provide for the people there, for starving people in their community. And, uh, and that situation continues. And so we're, we're going to give the opportunity for each of us here to contribute towards meeting those needs. But on top of that, here Theophily is trying to, you know, catch the bus, essentially, hop on a motorcycle to go to work every day. And his wife works far away from home. And he's got aging parents he's taking care of. They're in dire straits. And so he's looking to buy a vehicle. And um, the reason he was willing to give that information is because um, a, a friend of his in this congregation asked him, how can we pray for your family? What needs do you have as a family? And he said, well, I could really use a vehicle. And so he looked at some quotes on vehicles, one that would meet his needs. It would cost about ten dollars to $12,000. And that's just the economy that they live in. And so <clears throat> we want to have an opportunity to support Theophily and his ministry, the poor in Rwanda. And so uh, there are boxes in the back. You see the, the regular giving box in the back, and there's a, there, there's a plate in the foyer that if you uh, want to give to this, if you want to support and help them purchase this vehicle, as well as the, the, the benevolence work that his church is doing, that he is doing within his church, then you can uh, write a check and write on the envelope, Rwanda. Uh, or Africa, and we'll be able to figure it out, and that gift will go that direction. But there's a second, there's a second need, and this is a, a slightly different one, but in the neighboring country of Burundi, they have, uh, they're not locked down in the same way that, that Rwanda is. Actually, Burundi has taken a little bit lighter-handed uh, uh, view of COVID and how to deal with it. But it turns out that Lake Tanganyika, which Burundi runs along this lake, has been flooded, and so there's a, a large homeless population, essentially. In Burundi, and so Pastor Boniface, who is uh, uh, someone I've worked with in in Burundi uh, several times, he's trying to minister to these people, and so you've got an extremely poor church trying to minister to the homeless, many of whom are their own members of their congregation, and they just don't have a lot of funds to be able to do that. And add on top of that, 
that the government has required that all churches, in order to be able to open, must have sanitary restrooms. Now, I don't know how they're defining sanitary restrooms, okay? But the, the long story short, it's a financial burden on every single church because no church, virtually no church, has sanitary restrooms according to the government's definition. And until they have that, they cannot meet. And so Pastor Boniface is stuck because here he, he pastors several churches. They can't meet until they get these things met. And so that's a, that's a massive financial need. And so that's another one that we want to be able to contribute to. And so if, if uh, you want to uh, help out the poor among the saints in Burundi, then you have that opportunity the same way. Write out the check to Parkside and then on the envelope, uh, Market for Africa, or if you want to specifically, you, you could probably write you know, African bathrooms or Burundi, B-U-R-U-N-D-I. We have opportunities. God has blessed us enormously financially. And here in our passage, we have Paul uh, and if you read these other passages in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, if you read about it in Acts, the churches he was, he was gathering money from were not wealthy churches. He talks about their own extreme poverty, and yet they gave generously and sacrificially out of their own extreme poverty to help the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. We have a similar opportunity just among our own acquaintance right now to be able to uh, support the uh, needy, Christians in Rwanda and in Burundi. And so these are needs that we just found out about in the last couple of weeks. So we want to open that up to you as a very practical application. So here you have Paul. He wanted to go to Spain for evangelism. He was going to go back to Jerusalem for benevolence purposes. And then he wanted to head to Rome for strengthening. Look at verses 28 and 29. When therefore I have completed this, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So this is a third aspect of his ministry. Not only is he an evangelist, not only is he heavily involved in a benevolence work for the saints in Jerusalem, but he wants to stop in Rome, he wants to fellowship with them, and he wants to strengthen their church. He wants to contribute to their ministry. He wants to perhaps correct them in some small ways, perhaps help settle this issue between Jew and Gentile in their midst. He wants to strengthen them. And so he wants to spend time with them. So his ministry was a broad-ranging kind of ministry. And actually, if you think about uh, what's happening in the book of Acts, you have to think back to the story of the book of Acts. You, you read in Acts chapter 20 that Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem and he swings by Ephesus and meets with the, the elders there. They pray on the beach and you've got that great prayer and that great time together. And then he moves on, he continues to head and where's he going? He's going to Jerusalem. He's bringing this gift and along the way he keeps hearing from, uh, from these people telling him, you're going to suffer when you go there. And the Spirit testified the same thing to him. He actually had a prophet named Agabus who said, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound up. But he said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go. And so you see Paul on his way to Jerusalem. He gets to Jerusalem. And he ministers there for a period of time. He, he gives the benevolence need. And then he gets arrested. And he gets almost killed. There are riots. He's not just arrested for like, you know, a week or two. He's actually kept in, in jail, in prison, in Caesarea for two years. If you think about, you know, what Paul has just written. Hey, look, I'm going to run to Jerusalem. I'm going to drop off this gift. And then I'm going to come back by way of you. I'm going to spend time with you in Rome. And then I'm going to go on to Spain and continue on my ministry. Well, his going to Jerusalem didn't work out exactly like he thought. He ended up with this whole riot going on and being arrested. And then his life was in danger. And then he's in jail for a couple of years. Well, then he gets shipped from Caesarea. He's going to Rome. So he's actually headed to Rome, which was his plan. He gets shipwrecked. He's got to you know, stay like the whole season on this you know, random island on the way there. He, he finally gets to Rome, but he's not free as he do it, does it. He's in chains, right? But he wanted to spend some time in Rome. How much time did he spend in Rome? The remainder of the book of Acts. At least a couple of years he spent in Rome. But he had his own apartment. But he wasn't out on the town or out visiting the churches, but they were coming to him. And so he actually did get to spend time with them. He actually did get to fellowship with them. 
just not quite under the circumstances that he thought he was going to be able to. But we see Paul's ministry had these different emphases. There was, there was everything from evangelism to church strengthening. And I, and I can tell you from personal experience that on the mission field, the, the missionaries who are primarily evangelistic tend to have a little tension in their relationship with the missionaries who are primarily focused on building churches and planting churches and strengthening churches. They, they, kind, of, they kind of have a tug of war with each other about which one's the best kind of ministry. What should we be focused in? Well, Paul is doing both. And add into that the fact that Paul is, is, has undertaken this major benevolence offering at the same time. So what's the application? Why am I talking about all this? Well, I'm talking about it, one, because it's here in the text, but two, there's a great application for us. How can you be ministering where you are? Right where you are. And evangelism is not the only legitimate ministry. That's not all Paul did. I mean, he evangelized as he went hither and yon. But he had other things that he focused on. Nor is benevolence and mercy the only good way to minister. Benevolence and mercy ministries are legitimate ministries, but they are not the only type of ministry. Paul participated in that. And Paul encouraged the churches to participate in that. But it wasn't the only one. Likewise, teaching and strengthening the church are not the only kinds of ministry that we ought to pursue. Not everybody gets to participate in the same ways in each of these different kinds of ministries. But each one is a legitimate function. It's a legitimate ministry that Paul himself pursued. God has placed you where you are on purpose. He has you where you are at this point on purpose. The sphere of the, the, the people around you, they are your ministry field. See, I, I talked about the time in, in the, the beginning of the message. I talked about when we were uh, training to go overseas and we were looking at Russia and that was kind of the future. But what I, what I didn't really share with you is, is what was going on in my heart at that same time. I was under the very misdirected notion. And, and I, I could have told you this was wrong, but it was still what was in my heart. I was waiting for ministry. When I get to Russia, when I get to the field, that's when I'll do ministry. Everything in between is kind of, you know, preparation or treading water or getting ready or this isn't the ministry. The ministry will be when I, when I get there, boots on the ground. That's when I get to do real ministry. And, of course, that is entirely fallacious. For some of you, you may feel a little bit like that. Not that you're in active preparation to do some ministry in the future. But you may be in a place right now where you feel like you're unable to minister because of something. Maybe you're a, a mom of, of young children. And you're thinking, you know, when the kids grow up and they're out of the house or when they're a little bit more independent, I've got some more time, then I can do ministry. Then I can do ministry. A real uh, helpful ministry that, that God will, you know, honor and that, that, uh, that will be a good thing, Right? But I, I want to encourage you, mother of small children, your children are your ministry. Your children are your ministry. You will never have more profound evangelistic or discipleship opportunities than you do with your own children. Ever. They are your ministry. Don't fall into the trap of just passing the time waiting for real ministry to start sometime in the future. The ministry that you have with your children is the best ministry that there is. So don't pass up that time. Don't, don't feel like you're treading water. Don't feel like you, you, uh, someday you'll get to minister. When, if I ever get outside of the home, God has given you those children. They are your field. Minister to them. Or maybe your job is so demanding that you, you don't dare take even more time away from your family. You already work long hours. You don't dare take even more time to do some kind of ministry at the church. You don't, uh, you know, you, you'd like to help out with the musical, and, and, but you can't take that time off, or, or you'd like to help with Awana, but it doesn't really work out. Maybe your job is so demanding that you feel like you can't do real ministry. Your family and that job are real ministry. They are real ministry. And so do that job for God's glory. Do that job with 
an eye out for ministering to the people around you, for doing the best job you can as a ministry to God. That job and your family are your ministry, and you will not be entering into ministry at some point in the future when your time frees up. You're ministering. You have opportunity for ministry right now. Paul's ministry took many different forms, and he didn't wait until the circumstances were just like he wanted before he dove into ministry. And if you think about it, he was in prison, Caesarea, for two years. And what was he doing? Well, he was sharing the gospel. He was preaching the gospel. He was, he was meeting with governing officials and all kinds of stuff like that. And when he went to Rome, what did he do? Well, he was inviting people in and he was ministering to Jew and Gentile alike. He was doing evangelism, church training, and, and all of that stuff during his time in Rome. So you have opportunity for ministry right now. It doesn't have to be preaching. It doesn't have to be teaching. It doesn't have to be leading a Bible study. It doesn't have to be doing something official at the church or starting some group. It might be, and those are great things. Minister where God has put you. He has given you a sphere of people around you. Minister to them. Take the gospel to them. Care for them. Bring them into your life. Invite them into your life. And minister to them. And if that entire sphere seems like it's just your kids. Minister to them. Bless them. Teach them. Train them. That is your ministry. That is legitimate ministry. Finally, we move on to his request for prayer. I want to notice, first of all, prayer to the triune God. There, there are some, there are many skeptics who think that, oh, the Trinity... That's just something the church cooked up after the church age or after the apostolic era, after the first century. The, the church just, they made some changes and they came up with this idea of the Trinity. Well, I want to push back on that. Look at verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Did you catch all three? Did you catch the members of the Trinity? Now, he didn't say Father, and it didn't say Son, but it said Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. The Spirit of God, who is the Holy Spirit, and God, generally as a reference to the Father. In one verse, right here, he's encouraging prayer to the triune God. So it's right here in Scripture. This isn't the only place. Actually, we've seen it uh, earlier on in our passage, and I kind of I went by it pretty quickly. But if you look back up at, at uh, verse 16... be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, so you've got the Son, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, the Father, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So once again, you've got all three present in the same verse, in the same activity, that, that all are working in Paul's ministry. So this isn't a, a message on the Trinity, but it is there in the text. They hadn't hammered out uh, all the, you know, the Greek words and the Latin words or how exactly we describe or understand the Trinity and how uh, the, the three persons of the Trinity relate to one another and there being one being. They, didn't, they hadn't hammered that out yet, but the elements are there. The elements are there. There is one God, and yet the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. And yet there's only one God. The elements are here. So don't, don't let the skeptic tell you, oh, they just cooked that up, that idea of the Trinity up later on. Well, no, it's right here. We just looked at two verses, and it was present in both. So Paul is requesting prayer. Requesting prayer. Having been a missionary and being in the ministry still, I can tell you that there are few things that a minister desires more than to have people praying for him. Here Paul is traveling hither and yon. He's arrested at times. He's shipwrecked. You know, when you're floating in the water and you're holding on to and it's, you're the, you know, you're the only person you see. Like, you want someone praying for you. Right? I mean, I would guess. I've never been in that situation. But, but I would imagine that you would want something pray, pray, someone praying for you. And I can tell you in my own life, we want someone praying for us. A minister 
needs someone praying. It turns out that the, the minister's task and Paul's task without the activity of God is an impossible task. It is impossible to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. It is impossible for you to bring someone to Christ, actual, true, saving faith in Christ, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it. It's impossible for you to change someone else's heart. You've got a relational struggle. You've got a difficulty you're in. There's someone in your life that's just impossible or they're, or they're, they're, they're destroying their life and they need heart change. You can't change their heart. The Bible says actually they can't change their heart because it's deceitful and desperately wicked. But the Spirit of God works right on that level. The Spirit of God works the kind of ministry that accomplishes these things. And so, in order for ministry to be successful, in order for evangelism to be successful, to be successful, in order for Paul to do the things that Paul did, the Spirit must be at work. And so he is praying asking people to pray that God would be at work in His ministry. Changing lives. Opening doors. Changing hearts. Bringing people to faith. Protecting Him. Or helping Him work through the difficulties when He suffers, like being in jail for years on end. And so He requests prayer. He asks, that they would be praying for him. So he requests prayer to the triune God, and part of his prayer is for success in Jerusalem. Verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So he's just asking that as he goes to Jerusalem, even though he's bringing money that's going to be uh, a gift for the saints there in Jerusalem to give to the, the Jewish Christians there in Jerusalem, he knows that he faces certain obstacles. First of all, the unbelieving Jews are not going to receive him well. He's made a name for himself, and it's not a good one. He keeps preaching Christ, and for those who hate Christ, that's a terrible thing. And so he's going to be in danger from the unbelievers while he's there, and actually, if you think about what happens in the book of Acts, that's exactly what happens. The riot happens. His life is being threatened. Yet certain people take a vow that I'm not going to eat until he's dead. Right? That's, that's what he walked into. And he kind of knew he was heading into that. So he is asking for deliverance in that regard. But also he's asking that he would be well received by the saints in Jerusalem. Now what kind of conditions would cause the saints in Jerusalem not to receive a man who's bringing money to them? <laughs> you would think that would, you know, open some doors and, and make some friends, Right? Well, the, what happens when Paul arrives in Jerusalem is that the, uh, many of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had heard about Paul's ministry, but they had misheard. They had been told lies about Paul's ministry that actually, did you know Paul is telling the Gentiles to forsake Moses? To forsake circumcision? To forsake the custom of the Jews? Did you know that Paul is going around with that kind of message? He's turning Gentiles away from the law, turning Gentiles away from the Scripture. You can see how that's a twisted version of what Paul was actually doing. What Paul was actually doing when he was preaching in all of those places, when he was working among the Jews and among the Gentiles throughout the world, what he was doing was proclaiming that acceptance with God does not happen by means of the law. Does not happen by means of circumcision does not happen by means of some sort of religious custom that the Jews or anyone else has. And so his message was, you, you cannot make yourself acceptable to God by doing those things. Our acceptance before God is purely based upon Christ himself and what he has done. The one who has obeyed, the one who has kept the law, the one who has fulfilled all of God's righteous expectations by faith in him, you can be acceptable to God, not by anything additional, not by anything else. Because we can't overcome our sin problem. We're guilty before God because of our sin. But Jesus, the righteous one, also went to the cross and paid the penalty for my sin. So that God's righteous anger, his wrath, is fully poured out on Christ. 
so that by faith in him, I receive forgiveness. And by faith in him, my sin, having been placed upon Christ, is now exchanged for the righteousness of Christ credited to my account. And so Paul's message saying, look, the, the law of Moses won't save you. Only Christ can save you. Circumcision will not save you. Only Christ can save you. No other religious tradition or practice or thing that you do can save you. Only faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can save you. And so his message that he has preached has been twisted. It's been misunderstood. And he knows it's going to cause problems with him when he goes to Jerusalem. Because these Jews who've not been traveling with him, they've not heard him preach. They've just heard the rumors. He's preaching against Moses. He's saying, pray to God that I would be received by the Jews, the, the believing Jews, the Christians in Jerusalem. So that, verse 32, by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And may the God of peace be with you all. Our final point I want to make here is about God and peace. God and peace. There are different ways we can think about the relationship between God and peace. First of all is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Because of our sin, because of the, the, uh, the, the life of sin, the, the, the weight of the guilt of sin that we were born into and we contributed to ourselves, we actually have, had made ourselves, we were born into this and we contributed to being at enmity with God. There was hostility between God and unbelieving man. Hostility be between God and me as an unbeliever. But in Christ, when that exchange happens that I just explained, where, where Christ pays that penalty for my sin and His righteous acts, His complete and, and, and utter fulfillment of the law is applied to me, this enmity that I had with God now has been turned into peace with God. A cessation of hostilities. I am now actually not just no longer at war with God, I'm actually at peace. He's actually my father. He's made me his son. So that I've been, I've been brought right into God's family. So when we talk about the God of peace, we need to remember peace with God is ours through what Christ has done. But there's a second aspect of peace when we talk about peace and God, and that is peace as the notion of rest. Peace as the notion of rest. It's, a, it's kind of an internal reality. It's almost psychological. It's, a, it's something internal. You know when you're not at peace, right? Well, some of us genuinely are at peace with God because we are Christians. And yet because of some struggle with sin or some guilt that we wrestle with or some other relationship that we just won't fix or something like that inside, we're not at peace. We, we, we don't have that peace. There's no rest in there. And when we're in a situation like that, we need, to, we need to understand what we've been talking about in our Sunday school class, which if you've been missing our Sunday school class, you've been missing. I would encourage you to get the book, Bookends of the Christian Life, and we're starting in chapter 7 next week. But in that, we've been talking about the fact that we must have righteousness before God. And if I'm spinning my wheels in some way trying to Make sure I have enough righteousness before God to be acceptable to Him. I will never have rest. I will never have peace. But when I look to Christ and what He has done, I find His righteousness is full and perfect and complete and credited to me. So that I don't have to create, to generate my own righteousness. Something I do that brings me in line so that God would be happy with me. God is happy with me because of the righteousness of Christ. My relationship with Him is founded upon that. And so I don't have to build my own righteousness. Instead, I rejoice in the righteousness He gives me, and I live motivated by gratitude from that. That I don't have to run on that treadmill anymore. I don't have to try and earn that when I can't. I can rely upon the righteousness of Christ, and I live a life out of that that is motivated by gratitude for what He has done for me. That's the first bookend. 
the second bookend is that working in my life even now is the power of the Holy Spirit. He is working in me. He is directing me towards Christ so that, so that I trust in Christ and I see that I step out and seek to obey. This is kind of what Paul was talking about here when he says, I'm not, I'm not going to brag about anything except what Christ has done through me. That's what we're talking about. The Spirit of God working in us and motivating us. That's, that's the kind of peace that means rest. That's when, we, that's when we, we come to that place where we realize, you know what? I, I, I do have sin and I have guilt in my life. And, and I've confessed it and I, I've forsaken it. But my, 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 my stance with God, my position, my acceptance with God is not founded upon my record of righteousness, but Christ's. And that record cannot change. And so I rest in that record, the righteousness of Christ credited for me. So there's peace with God in our relationship. There's, there's peace in the sense of rest where I no longer have to be on that treadmill. And there's also peace with one another, which is what he's been talking about for the last couple of weeks, the last couple of chapters in the book of Romans, that the peace with God and the resulting comfort in our hearts ought to result in not only peace with God, but peace with all those who are God's people. Peace with one another. And so we, we, we work for peace with one another. We, we, we identify when, when we've got something in our own hearts that, that keeps us from pursuing that with one another. From, from seeing the peace of God flow out into our relationship with one another. As, as he said in chapter 14 and verse 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. I have peace with God. I've been given this, this peace as in rest in my own heart. I want to have peace with you too. Christians want to have peace with one another. So our final point of application here, you, you can have peace with God. You can have peace with God. You may be at a place. You may be in a place where you have trusted in your own worth, in your own righteousness, in your own ability to perform the things that would make God pleased with you. You, you have kept God's grace at a distance and you're running the treadmill yourself. You're actually at enmity with God. You're trying to establish a competing righteousness. But in Christ, you can have peace with God. Because He, Jesus, actually is completely and utterly and fully righteous and pleasing in God's sight. And He offers that to you as a gift, credited to your account. And He who is righteous went to the cross, not to bear any of His own penalty. He didn't have any penalty, but to bear mine, so that my sin is placed upon Him and punished fully in Him. My sin of enmity against God. It's punished in Him. So I receive forgiveness. It may be that, that you've heard this message many times. It may be that today is the first time you've ever heard this message. If you are not in Christ and you are depending upon yourself, you are at enmity with God, whether you feel it or not, whether you recognize it or not, whether you want to admit it or not. But in Christ, you can have peace with God. Put your faith in Christ and you will find that peace with God. Well, we finally did move overseas in 2007 and uh, we were going to be training pastors and church planners. That's not how it worked out. We did language school for a couple of years and that turned into me teaching English because I had to get a visa to live there for a while and I kept thinking, you know, when's the real ministry going to start? Well, actually, the ministry had already started. And just about the time I was, uh, we were establishing relationship with being able to uh, uh, train pastors and church planters, the door closed and we could no longer live there. Ministry often doesn't look the way we think it's going to look. Ministry looks all kinds of different ways. And we can minister right where we are in, in these various different ways, pointing people to Christ. It doesn't have to be a sermon in a pulpit. It doesn't have to be sharing the gospel over coffee, though it can certainly be both of those things. 
Ministry can look like collecting financial aid for the poor among the saints in a far-off land or locally. It can look like encouraging a discouraged sister in Christ who's facing hard times. It can look like all kinds of ways, and it can always start exactly where you are. At its heart, ministry is bringing the life-giving message that the God of peace has established peace between his own righteous person and sinners like you and me, and he's done so in the person and work of Christ. So we get to carry that message to a lost and dying world, and we get to do that arm-in-arm with other Christians as we are at peace with them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and uh, this peek into Paul's own ministry. I pray, Father, that we would look at our own lives and not think, well, ministry should look like something different. Ministry requires that I have some other opportunities that I don't currently have. Ministry would, would require that I have some other gifting that I don't have. But instead, that we would seek to make you known where we are and with those around us. Thank you for your mercy towards us. Thank you for Jesus, who has made us his own, brought us out of that enmity with God, instead making us his own brothers and sisters, bringing us right into your family. We praise you, and we thank you, and we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to pray with someone, there will be someone, a family up front to pray with you after we're done. But as we're leaving... These words from 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God bless you all, and you're dismissed.